This episode brought to you by the Velvet Hammer Podcast. This is Young Lawyer Rising from the American Bar Association Young Lawyers Division and Legal Talk Network. I'm Sonia Russo. Just as technology constantly evolves, its role in the legal profession is also changing. Over the last year and a half, technology has helped many of us work from home during the pandemic, changing the nature of court appearances and how we interact with clients. But is the expanding role of technology in the law always good? Who benefits from that expansion and who loses? A recent writing competition from the ABA Young Lawyers Division sought to answer that question. The first ever legal tech fictional writing competition done in conjunction with Access to Justice Tech Fellows and LexBlog featured short stories about technology and its impact on law and our society. What you're about to hear is the first part of a two-part series featuring winning authors from the Legal Tech Fictional Writing Competition. In this episode, we talked to Teresa Yuen, a 2021 graduate of Notre Dame Law School. Teresa won the competition with her short story, In the Matter of Infinite Monkeys. In it, she explores a society in the near future in which predictive algorithms are used to predetermine outcomes for everything including what kind of person a child will become. Can technology really predict a child's fate? And what happens if it can? Teresa did a reading of her story for us in this episode, and then we talk about it. Here's In the Matter of Infinite Monkeys. Appeal decision, I said automatically. Unsuccessful. You lack sufficient credits for the appellate submission fee, the digital clerk told me. I know, I said, even though there's no arguing with a computer. But this is my six-year-old son we're talking about. The digital clerk said nothing. I wondered if I could call over a human clerk, but the city only kept two on the payroll, and they were typically furloughed. Fine, I said, just a minute. Kayla had warned me against using robo-lawyer. Last night, as we videoed, she wanted me to give up on our son. She would hear nothing about how evil and ridiculous and wrong the boarding school administrators were to insist on transferring Max to a preventative rehab center. Their suggestion that we terminate custody to avoid paying the rehab bills did not even faze her. If they've calculated his future so exactly and it looks that bad, who are we to argue, she said. That algorithm they use can make mistakes, I said. There's new science coming out all the time about antipathy in children, if it's even that. If it isn't just the school thinking he's a problem because he's not as rich as the other kids, he doesn't look like the other kids, he didn't go to that charter preschool program they did. They predicted that next time, instead of killing a gerbil, he'll break someone's nose, Kayla said. And they predicted he's going to permanently maim someone by the time he's 15. Her lips were pressed into a thin line. I was so familiar with those lips. We used to be in a post-industrial synth band together. We played sets all over the city. Kayla sang. Her lips were ruby red, almost touching the microphone. The bars paid us in beers. We sat on the stools to cheer for the opening bands. 
It was a time to undertake joint projects, to play everywhere we were invited, to agree with our hearts pounding and our hands clasped over the plus sign on the pregnancy test that we should have Max. The bars started hiring algorithmic bands to open. At first, the crowd talked over those sets. Who cares to watch if there's nobody swaying and twitching on stage? But the algorithmic bands got better. They studied the entire musical catalog of man-made music and moved on to natural sounds like whale songs and leaves rustling before a storm. The melodies were faster than anything I could pluck out on the bass guitar. The music swelled exactly when you wanted it to. Even I had to admit, shouting in Kayla's ear, that algorithmic music was beautiful. Kayla stopped drinking beer because she was carrying Max. I stopped too, because I felt sick to my stomach listening to perfect music. Then the bars stopped inviting us. Now Kayla had long sold her microphone, my guitar. She was back up north, taking samples on the oil rig and videoing me after third shift, a ghost in pixels for most of the year. Their antipathy algorithm could be wrong, I told Kayla. I had to repeat myself because my connection flickered out, and saying it the second time, it sounded stupider. I trusted the science. I knew hundreds of programmers checked algorithms for biases and bugs. And if artificial intelligence was so dumb, how did it manage to replace us in the bars? Kayla sighed. Even if the algorithm is wrong, the school is wrong, and whatever the judge says tomorrow is wrong, we can't afford to do an appeal and lose and then pay for Max to be at that rehab place. We can afford robo-lawyer, I said to her. It's free to do appeals through that algorithm that's learning how to do appeals. Kayla's face went flat. I fantasized that it was just her connection failing. I knew she was disappointed in my obstinacy. I knew she was second-guessing whether the dating algorithm all those years ago had correctly calculated our compatibility. After I wasn't a long-haired bass player in a band anymore, after that particular mask slipped away, I was just some hairy chump in a sweatshirt, lifting Max to the camera for her to see as he grew over the years. I knew she wanted out, maybe a new baby with a new partner, and shared custody of Max was delaying her. I didn't care. The conversational quality algorithm, which listened and parsed keywords from hundreds of similar conversations, flashed a warning on both our screens. Unproductive conversation. Tomorrow I'm gonna use RoboLawyer if I have to to get our son back, I said, reaching for the button to end the call. I hope you'll be here to welcome him when I do. RoboLawyer is loading your appeal, said the pleasant deep voice coming out of my phone. I trusted that voice right away. Such timber, straight out of a real office with mahogany bookcases and a freestanding globe. Standing before the digital clerk in juvenile court, I accepted the terms and conditions. I acknowledged the privacy policy. I assumed legal, political, and emotional liability. I agreed that RoboLawyer was not my lawyer, or maybe that RoboLawyer was whatever the rows and rows of text wanted. I was impatient. Robo-lawyer is ready to submit your appeal, said the pleasant deep voice. Press submit. My finger hovered over the button. I pressed submit. Your appeal is filed, the digital clerk said. Can I read the appeal? I asked Robo-lawyer. No, 
It is proprietary information, said the pleasant deep voice. I realized I was sweating and cold all at once, but it was out of my hands. This algorithm would take care of us. The Monday after, the school informed me that Max had bit a classmate at recess. The classmate required surgery. I tried not to think about that on the way back to the juvenile court. They had summoned me. They had reached their decision. I arrived breathless. I didn't have time to load robo-lawyer before a human clerk handed me the decision. It was two sentences long. The appeal is frivolous. Adjudication of delinquency affirmed. It had to be a mistake. I fumbled for my phone. My hands shook. The human clerk tapped on the glass window between us to get my attention. You used robo-lawyer, she said. Yeah, I mean, I think there's been some mistake, I said. So I'll try again. Don't bother, Mr. Swin, she said. We've been seeing this a lot with that app. She pressed a copy of the appeal against the glass window. I leaned in to read it. Motion for rehearing in the matter of MS. Pursuant to section 3348, I request that this case be set for rehearing before the juvenile court judge. I'm appealing the order from the decision of the magistrate. The specific part of the magistrate's order that I'm appealing is the order from the decision of the magistrate. The specific part of the magistrate's order that I am appealing is the order from the decision of the magistrate. The specific part of the magistrate's order that I am appealing is the order from the decision of the magistrate. The rest of the page went on in a loop. They say infinite monkeys typing on infinite keyboards could eventually write Shakespeare, the human clerk said. But maybe the algorithms aren't there yet. I could feel Max's hair against my cheek the last time I hugged him at the school gate. I'll appeal again, I said. Everyone only gets one bite at the apple, the human clerk said. I sagged into my collared shirt. Somehow, from some churn of an invisible machine, it was over. The human clerk looked at me as if in pity. Why don't you ask the judge for the alternative program, she said. It's Sunday at the train station, two months after I asked for the alternative program. Kayla has all her bags. She's leaving. She won't be back. She's sure. Max watches me carefully. Ever since coming back from that school, he's been quiet. He isn't crying right now, but I am. I take off the total surveillance glasses to dab at my eyes. The glasses feed footage, the juvenile delinquency identification algorithm, which flashes warnings to me. Aggressive behavior, when I see Max, takes Savage to the light, in crushing a row of ants. Antipathy detected when Max lies about breaking the television. I'm supposed to correct the behavior. I ignore the warnings. Algorithms can be wrong. It's fine that the glasses watch us. It watches so many families. From its perspective, we must look like rows and rows of scrambling primates. I don't feel shame at what it sees. There's nothing to hide. Just Max's round body, luminous in the sunlight streaming into the station. Just the two of us, my cheek pressed to his hair for a minute. Coming up, we'll talk with the author herself about her story, what inspired it, and the legal considerations for allowing artificial intelligence to make certain decisions for us. But first, here's a quick message from our sponsor. We'll be right back. 
The Velvet Hammer podcast is a down and dirty look at what really makes trial lawyers tick. Nationally recognized and award-winning plaintiff attorney, Karen Kohler is an aggressive, charismatic, and dominating litigator wrapped up in a sweet little mommy-grandma package. Her colorful stories teach lessons drawing upon 35 years of experience, including the sensational four-month Ride the Duck trial in Seattle. Subscribe for free on your favorite podcasting app. Welcome back, listeners. Here's my interview with Teresa Yuen about her short story, In the Matter of Infinite Monkeys. Well, thank you so much for being with us, Teresa. I really enjoyed reading your story. One question I want to start out with is, one thing that's common in your story is the shortcomings of predictive algorithms, specifically in the context of determining an outcome on a case. Can you explain why you think predictive algorithms might not capture all the variables that they need to or that they should capture? Yeah, yeah. So I was thinking about, well, so when I was writing the story, then I was also listening to an audiobook about where AI is right now. How, so a lot of times when you're trying to teach algorithms to say, write their own jokes or something, it's like they end up in these loops so that was kind of the direct inspiration for what I was thinking. Maybe if you had a robo-lawyer, this is what it would end up doing. But also like kind of thinking about it in the context of, well, this algorithm, it's kind of like the people, the pro se litigants are the products. So they're able to use it for free because they are helping to train the algorithm about whether a case outcome is positive or not based on whatever the text of the appeal has been filed, the results from that. So, yeah, I, I guess I was thinking about just a, a couple possibilities from algorithms, um, thinking through stuff that I'd been reading. Yeah, I mean, because I think one thing that occurred to me while I was reading your story was that these algorithms that kind of keep sort of predicting and impacting and influencing almost every outcome of your protagonist's life, that they may not recognize you know, more emotional elements of things. They might not recognize more human elements of things, and particularly with respect to the child at the, at the center of the story. Do you think there's any way for that kind of technology to allow for that or to, to handle that, or that that is just a flaw in that technology? Yeah, I mean, I guess I, yeah, I, I don't know. I'm not a computer scientist. So yeah, I mean, I am sure that with more time and learning and maybe like more memory for computers running these tasks, then they're going to be able to get really sophisticated and be able to predict these more human emotional things. So yeah, I mean, I guess I am optimistic, but also kind of like thinking about where we are now with biases that creep into the algorithms. It's kind of like a lot of the data that these algorithms are training off of it's biased in its own ways, whether it's like pictures or certain types of police stops. So yeah, it, it's kind of like, well, bad data in, it's going to be bad results coming out based on what we have available now. So your story seems to envision a time, maybe in the not so distant future, when everything we do is guided by algorithms. And, you know, one thing I know from your story that, that is true and that's happening right now is that algorithms, for example, influence online dating, which is just one example. Uh, do you think that we might eventually get to a place where we have algorithms 
that tell us that we're having an unproductive conversation as happened in your story or that our children will grow up to be violent? Yeah, yeah, I think that's that's such a good question. And yeah, I mean, I think we should maybe all ask this because it kind of, it's like, how do we approach technology in our own day-to-day lives? And sometimes I think it's kind of like, I was trying to convey that we kind of, in order to be, like scientific minded, we're like, well, we should rely on the algorithms and we should trust those results. And maybe we doubt our own intuition or something because there's some algorithm that tells you, well, this is the right person to be dating. So yeah, I think I think it's kind of just like a feature of living in the 21st century. We're kind of in our own way, it's like we have to sort of develop this trust, but it's maybe a little bit superstitious in how we believe that algorithms can come up with the best outcomes for ourselves. What kind of role do you think that predictive algorithms or other technology, you know, like AI, like artificial intelligence, will play in the legal system? Yeah, I mean, so I think I know that it's already playing some roles. So there's apps. I think there might even be an app or a website called RoboLawyer where you can appeal. I think it's parking tickets, like traffic violations. And to my knowledge, I think it's that there's some algorithmic part, but it's not, I mean, it's not like acting like your lawyer. Maybe there are lawyers on the back end looking at what what's getting spat out. But yeah, so I, I think maybe for these kinds of routine appeals, like that's going to be a possibility. Um, I've also heard like maybe there's ways of writing wills where you could just have it done algorithmically. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, I was really trying to think about it in the context of habeas appeals. And yeah, I, I know that there have been at least a couple years ago, I was looking at a project where there was a way where you could answer a series of questions about your appeal and then maybe it could generate some some type of habeas appeal, but it's also like, I mean, habeas appeals are so complicated that, yeah, it's kind of a difficult problem that they're trying to tackle. But yeah, I mean, I think maybe that's where the technology could go, given that a lot of litigation in the country is around, you know, people's liberty interests. Yeah, well, absolutely. And that's so interesting to me that the example that you just said is habeas petitions. And, you know, and I think you just reference things that affect people's liberty interests. I guess I'm curious to know, like, does that concern you at all that that AI might be playing some kind of role in like these very significant, and also as you pointed out, particularly with habeas cases, you know, very complicated kinds of appeals and litigation? Yeah, I mean, I think it's hard because it's like, given that there's a huge access to justice gap, it's like, well, if there isn't, enough representation for these appeals, maybe for other kinds of civil litigation, then where can pro se litigants turn? Maybe they have to find some system that's cheap and then they can, yeah, I mean, it's just thinking about like material benefits for litigants. So yeah, I mean, I I think, I guess it is tough because it's like, well, lawyers should be trying to do a little more I know state bars, they have all kinds of sort of like pro bono programs. So yeah, there, there's all kinds of back-end solutions. But also at the same time, it's kind of like, well, maybe the market will provide a solution. Maybe it's not going to be great for the litigants necessarily, but maybe it's better than not having anything, um, you know, going unrepresented through, I don't know, like an immigration case or something like that. 
Yeah, that's super interesting that you bring that up, actually, because that was going to be one of my questions oh, was whether uh-huh. you think that there's a positive role to play in technology-driven solutions, considering that we have a pretty persistent, crushing access to justice problem in the United States. But it's interesting because there's obviously a need, and maybe in some ways technology can fill that need. But you know, you also just mentioned, for example, like maybe maybe the market will provide a solution. But I think if there's one thing we've seen at times <laughs> that sometimes yeah. the the market provided solution is not is not always great. So, I mean, do you think there is a positive role that technology-driven solutions can play here? Or are we kind of just going to be stuck with options that may be less than ideal, but they are options? I guess, well, yeah. I mean, it's maybe it's sort of a call to action, but it's that these options could be bad if lawyers kind of step aside and let the market, you know, programmers come up with their own solutions. I don't know. Maybe in an ideal world, it's like we would blend kind of lawyers working on cases on the back end after an algorithm has come up with an appeal or something like that. Yeah, I don't know. And and it's also kind of, there's also a need for courts, right? So like they need to be providing easy forms for pro se litigants to fill out and then supervising how that ends up. Um, yeah. So, I mean, in the story, it's kind of like the court is a non-presence, but ideally, and a lot of courts have been really active about helping pro se litigants. And was that a purposeful choice on your part in writing it to kind of make the court a very inactive sort of passive participant in this protagonist's case? Yeah, well, so I think, well, a couple of things. So like I was trying to decide and I didn't have enough space to write about whether or not I was trying to decide, like, should the judges also be robots somehow or should they be real people? And I was like, okay, I'll just leave that vague. But yeah, I mean, I was kind of trying to convey the sense that for a pro se litigant, it doesn't really matter. Like when you get the petition spat back at you and it says your appeal is frivolous, well, of course it's not frivolous. You're sitting in prison and I mean, there's very high stakes for you. That's why you're filing this petition. So, I mean, it's just kind of like an impersonal system that's providing you this result and it's difficult to understand. So, I mean, I think I was trying to convey a little bit of that, like, yeah, dissonance for people that aren't repeat players in a legal system. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I do think that it must be just an incredibly overwhelming, I would say even intimidating feeling for a pro se litigant or even somebody who's represented by counsel to engage in litigation in the legal system. And especially, yeah, if it's a habeas petition, I mean, that's a whole different level. So I think that's interesting that you said that. One of the things that I liked about your story was that to me, it had flavors of minority report. Um, so, (laughs) So what was the inspiration for your story? Yeah, well, I finally watched Minority Report this summer, actually. So after like having heard about it in all of my criminal classes. So yeah, and like that was also just based on philicated, kind of like thinking so far ahead about where policing goes. So yeah, I mean, that must be part of the inspiration. But also, yeah, I mean, for me, I was just thinking about before going to law school, I worked for a nonprofit. I was screening a lot of these habeas appeals and then kind of reading also about, you know, it's like, how do courts process these? A lot of times they have staff attorneys rather than full panels that are deciding the cases and then the judges then kind of approve whatever result the staff attorneys have recommended. Um, And then it gets passed down to these pro se 
prisoners who are really confused. So it was really interesting to me, like a lot of the letters. So, I mean, communicating with prisoners is like a really difficult thing to do. But uh, And a lot of these letters were coming from family members of the prisoners. And yeah, it was just really interesting to me thinking about how it is the parents, the mothers especially, that are doing a lot of this work. So when we think about pro se litigants, it's kind of, yeah, maybe we can extend it beyond just prisoners themselves, but it's their whole families that are trying to navigate the system. Yeah, absolutely. One of the courts that I clerked at, there was a full-time, at least one person, and I think actually there were multiple people whose full-time job it was to review pro se matters generally, but particularly, I mean, they were habeas petitions. So I can definitely understand that that would be an overwhelming experience for the person who is submitting that that filing because, yeah, they're pro se, they're confused. And there is a lot of law out there, obviously, on habeas petitions. But if you don't know what that is, then you can't you can't incorporate that. You can't use that to to help you. Yeah. Yeah. And it's tough for the staff attorneys, too, because you're getting kind of handwritten petitions. Yeah. And you're having to say, OK, well, you know, this is your third strike. No more filing with the court. So, yeah, it's it's tough all around. Yeah, absolutely. So the turning point for the protagonist in your story, uh, Mr. Sun, and I, I hope I'm saying his last <laughs> yeah. name correctly, is that eventually a human clerk suggests that he try an alternative program for his son, Max. Was the point there that RoboLawyer didn't suggest that or that the appeal that you see in your story, Mr. Sun pursuing, did not appear to allow for that kind of alternative program? you know, that, that he needed another live human being to suggest that to him? Yeah, I guess I wanted to show it's kind of, well, he's relying on this app. The app is like, well, you can't read the content. It's proprietary info. So, I mean, it's it's that he is the product. So maybe he can't access, he's not really able to access the justice system when he's just being used to help train an algorithm. Um, yeah, and I wanted a clerk intervention. I mean, yeah, just being in litigation, it's that the human clerks, they're the most powerful parts of the courtroom. And whether they give you a hit in one direction or not, you know, that can make or break everything. Um, so yeah, it was kind of that. And also kind of thinking about, well, so his appeal is done, but on the back end, the judge can customize the sentence in some way. So yeah, something that he thinks is a little bit better for his son, whether or not it is. I mean, surveillance is like another concern. Well, so that was actually going to be my next question for you. The total surveillance glasses in your story, to me, seem to get to the heart of what can be very thorny and complicated in the criminal justice system. You know, is it really serious that Max stomps on a line of ants or that he lies about breaking the TV? Or are these things that all kids do and they're not really that bad. It's just it's just part of being a kid, right? So how do we figure that out? Like, what's the sign of, you know, someone who's going to grow up to commit terrible crimes? And what's just sort of normal childhood development? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess I had Mr. Sun come up with his own solution, which is kind of noncompliance. He's going to ignore when the glasses tell him he has to teach his son to do something, you know, like correct his behavior in some way. But yeah, I mean, I don't know either. And I mean, it's such a weird time, like fusing psychology with law. It's like, yeah, I mean, it's just there's 
all kinds of new findings about what makes you likelier to be sociopathic, whether it's genetic or something. And then, yeah, I mean, what are the implications? How do we keep everyone else safe? And also to help the person that supposedly we've predicted all of this stuff for. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. It's just like a really, there's just a lot of need for, I guess, ethical thinking from the scientists and then from the programmers and the lawyers. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, because, you know, I, I think that one thing you said earlier in the interview, I think is really true when you have bad data in, you know, the outcome is probably also going to be bad. So in other words, when you have flawed data coming in, whatever outcome that arises that is based in part on on that data that that are used to come to a conclusion, you know, if it's the court or, you know, if it's any one of the you know, many different affiliated professionals that help a court decide what to do, that that is going to have an outsized influence and impact that I think, frankly, most people don't think about and they don't consider. Yeah, it was really strange to me. So I was working in domestic violence court and we would have these, it was like a public safety assessment, just a risk assessment about whether or not a defendant, whether they'd be a risk, um, a flight risk. And we would kind of like just print out those sheets and then give it to the judge. It wasn't clear that either the prosecutors or the defense lawyers really know how to interpret this. It's like a percentage of being a flight risk. It's not clear that we're trained at all to do that. And it's also not clear that judges are trained to interpret those results. And yet we're already kind of the technology is embedded. So, yeah, whether we like it or not, that's part of our reality. <laughs> yeah, I think I think that's absolutely true. Another element of your story that I thought was interesting is that systems, whether they're technological or institutional, are by their very nature inflexible. Do you think that that's a problem in general as we think about how laws are written and how they're applied and what the legal system actually looks like to someone who is not a lawyer? Yeah. Yeah. I hadn't thought about it. Yeah. Maybe from like the systemic perspective. It's like I think about it kind of just maybe like reading a lot of Kafka. Like he himself was a lawyer, very much a bureaucrat, and he knows kind of I think like just the postmodern weirdness of being part of the system and you never meet the people that decide your fate and yet they can decide your fate. Yeah, so there there's like a lot of just literature about how it's like criminal justice in the US has become very impersonalized or depersonalized, I guess would be a better word. And yeah, there's kind of attempts maybe with restorative justice or even like victims' rights movements, kind of two different politically oriented movements. But I think um, doing some things that are the same, which is trying to personalize criminal justice again. Yeah, like there's kind of movements to take us back to having systems, the criminal justice system be a little bit more human but yeah, it's all in flux, I guess. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, and I, and I think in terms of personalizing the criminal justice system, you know, and especially when we talk about access to justice and, and just kind of realistic sort of factors on the ground, I mean, everybody's overwhelmed with the number of cases they have, right? Like prosecutors, public defenders, probation officers, judges, like you name a cog in the legal system and they're probably overwhelmed. And so I wonder if that, too, plays a role in allowing technology, in viewing it as a solution, yes, but maybe in some ways just a way to 
to provide a more efficient pathway to, you know, like you said, like pretrial release, what somebody score on some risk assessment instrument, right, for flight risk. If that is what's going to spark additional reliance on these technologically driven solutions. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It's not, <laughs> it's hard to say. So, yeah. <laughs> it is hard to say. I think, you know, the legal industry is certainly changing, you know, and I think obviously law students like you are going to play a huge role in changing the system and changing the industry. Well, I really enjoyed your story. I found the pros to be lovely. It was descriptive. It was very evocative. It was specific. Yeah, it was just, it was a fantastic short story. So thank you so much for for writing it and submitting it for the contest. And congratulations on winning <laughs> Well, thank you. Yeah, yeah. And thank you so much for, yeah, reading it and, yeah, like picking out really interesting questions and I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, well, I think... Thank you to Teresa Yuen for sharing her story with us and speaking with me. To close our show, we now hear from Matthew Kerbis with his Financial Wellness Minute. Here's Matthew. Thanks, Sonia. There's a lot of advice out there about paying off your student loans, and nothing said on this podcast or segment is financial advice, so make sure to consult a financial advisor before making financial decisions. In order for this segment to make sense, go back and listen to our prior episodes of Young Lawyer Rising. If you set up your spending and tracking spreadsheet and stop spending money on the inessentials, then you should be seeing that spend category going down month after month and that savings category going way up. If you have student loans and you haven't done so already, add a category to your tracking spreadsheet called student loans, where you can enter your monthly spend on student loan payments. This category includes your minimum payment and extra payments you put towards your student loans to pay them down faster. Why would you want to pay more money on your student loans? Because it's worth more money at the end of your loan. At the start of each month, go back and look how much money you saved. Decide how much of last month's savings you want to keep in your savings account and how much you are willing to pay on top of your monthly student loan payment. You can gamify this exercise by challenging yourself to see how much you can save each month and how much of those savings you can put towards extra payments on your student loans and try to beat your prior month's extra payment. There are three important considerations to make when engaging in this exercise. First, hit your savings goal before making extra payments on your student loans. For example, a savings goal commonly recommended is to have at least six months worth of living expenses saved up, but whatever savings goals you make are up to you. Second, recognize that you are looking backwards at money you have already saved and not future savings. In other words, don't make extra payments on student loans with money you don't have. This extra payment could be made at a different time than your regularly scheduled payment. Third, remember that every month is going to be different. Sometimes you have to pay your insurance premium, a co-payment for a doctor's visit, or some other expense that only occurs a few times a year. Don't get so overzealous in making extra student loan payments that you neglect to pay for those things first. Good luck getting student debt free. I hope to see you at the finish line. This Financial Wellness Minute is brought to you by the ABA YLD Student Loan Debt and Financial Wellness Team. Back to you, Sonia. And that's our show. Thanks for tuning in. Stay tuned for part two of this two-part series on legal technology innovation. This episode was written and produced by me and Lawrence Coletti. Edit and mixed by Adam Lockwood. Thank you to Teresa Yuen for sharing her story with us. And thank you to Matthew Kerbis for his Financial Wellness Minute. 
Until next time, I'm Sonia Russo, and this is Young Lawyer Rising from the American Bar Association Young Lawyers Division. 